0: Alright, if you haven't done so already, you can open up with me to that same passage. Acts chapter 2. As I was telling the kids, we are still in Peter's sermon here. So Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36 is going to be our focus this morning, but as I was telling... Uh, the kids, remember this is this is part of Peter's sermon explaining to the crowds that have gathered what they are seeing and hearing. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus had poured out his spirit upon his disciples. He had clothed them with, with power that they might be ministers of the word, as he had called them ministers, not only there in Jerusalem, but even to the ends of the earth. And so He had poured out His Spirit and the the demonstration of that wonder was that His disciples were now all speaking in tongues. They were were proclaiming the great works of God to those who were gathered in Jerusalem for the feast and they were doing so not in the languages that they already knew, but they were doing so in the languages of the people who had come, the people who had gathered in Jerusalem. They They were speaking in their native dialects and everybody was amazed. Everybody was wondering what was going on. Some people knew God was doing something. Others sort of mocked and, and made fun of them and, and suggested maybe that these people were drunk. And so in the midst of all of that confusion, Peter stands up to, to proclaim to the crowd, to explain to the crowd what's going on, to explain to the crowd the events of Pentecost and, and, and what they were seeing and hearing. And it is as he is explaining that, that he points the people, remember, to the prophecy of Joel. We saw that last Sunday. We, we see that in, in verses 14 through 21. Peter stands up and says, these people are not drunk. Last time I checked drunk, people don't speak in languages they don't know. That's, that's not what's going on here. But rather, these people are filled with the Holy Spirit. These people have been clothed with power for, for ministry. And this is exactly what God said He was going to do through the prophet Joel. For the prophet Joel had, pro- had foretold a day when God would pour out His Spirit on His church and that all of them, the young and the old, the men and the women, the, the, the high and the low, the masters and the servants, said all of them would prophesy, all of them would be clothed in power as ministers of God's Word. And Peter says that is exactly what is going on here. This is that baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is that clothing with power. This is that outpouring of the Spirit that Joel foretold. And as we can imagine as Peter makes this proclaims this to the crowds as they as they hear him saying listen this is the, the, the phenomenon that, that Joel foretold we can imagine that that raised at least a couple of questions in the minds of those who were listening all right first they would want to know well why now you know Joel prophesied a really long time ago that was you know Joel 400 years maybe even 1000 years we don't know exactly when Joel spoke but but it was a long time ago and if Joel prophesied so long ago, and if God hasn't done it yet, why should we believe that he's doing it now? Why would we believe that God is acting now? But also, they would want to know, and why not us? If Joel said that all flesh was going to be baptized with the Spirit, if Joel said that, that, that all people were going to, to receive this power, Why is it just this band of 120 disciples that are speaking in tongues? Why not us? I want to suggest to you that, that in the remainder of his sermon, Peter's really addressing both of those questions. He's addressing the question, why now? And he's addressing the question, why not us? I can't possibly address both of those questions this morning, so we're going to take two weeks. We're going to take today to really look at the question, why now? Why is it now that God is doing this? And then next Sunday, uh, we will take up the question of why not us. So this morning, let's look at that question of why now. Why is it that God has decided now to fulfill the prophecy that Joel foretold? And Peter really sums up his answer in that verse that I was uh, emphasizing to the kids. This is, this is the punchline of the text, so to speak. This, this is Peter's own summation of what he's trying to get across to the crowd. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know, let them know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That is the key. That, That is the summary of what Peter wants the crowds on the day of Pentecost to understand. That God has made him, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him to be both Lord and Christ. And it is because he has been enthroned as Lord and Christ that he has now poured out the Spirit. That's what he says explicitly in verse 33. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God as Lord and Christ, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so why now? Because God has made him to be Lord in Christ. And to understand really the full significance of that, I want us to, to start by just asking, what does it mean to call Jesus Lord in Christ? Then I want us to ask, what does it mean to say that he has become Lord in Christ? What, is it, what does it mean to say that God has made him to be Lord in Christ? And then finally, by what, ver- by what evidence does Peter say, "No, you may know this for certain? So let's begin just simply with with the titles, Lord and Christ. What does Peter mean when he refers to Jesus as Lord and Christ? I think it's actually very similar to the phrase that we use often in the evangelical church today. We, We often speak of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's much the same idea that, that Peter is getting at here using these phrases of Lord and Christ. As I, as I was saying to the kids, to, to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that He is the King. And this was, this was a common confession in the New Testament church. We, we see it, for example, in Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul writes in chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be Saved. This was the fundamental New Testament confession. Jesus is Lord. When we speak about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what we are talking about. You are believing that He is the Lord, that He is uh, the King. And when you uh, confess that he is Lord, you, you are saying that he is not just, not just your personal king, but that he is the king of the cosmos, that he is the Lord of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is what it is to, to receive him. It is to acknowledge his rule over your life. And so if he is king, then obviously he is the one whom you must honor and obey. He is the one whom whom you must devote yourself to. He is the one whom you must serve. But we also must recognize that that He is not just a king who must be served, but He he is a king who serves His people. He is a king who establishes peace and and justice and and righteousness on earth. This is what the, the hope of the king was all about in Old Testament Israel. We see it in, in passages like, like Isaiah chapter 9 and this, this child that's going to be born who's going to establish a kingdom, who's going to establish a dominion that is marked by righteousness and peace. You see, it's not. it doesn't take an expert to, to look around and see that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. That, that things are, are broken. That our systems don't work, that our, that our cultures are corrupted, that, that people do what is right in their own eyes and it leads not to utopia but to hell on earth. That's the, the picture that we get throughout the book of, of Judges. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes and it, and it never leads to anything good. And so the hope of Israel, the longing of Israel, was that one day a king would come who could put things right. One day a king would come who could deal with the brokenness and the the corruption. But that hope was was never fully realized, not even in King David. Because not only was David himself a sinner, but all the people he ruled were sinners. And while David could, could subdue foreign enemies with the help of the Spirit, he could not subdue the people themselves. And so a king that could not only conquer sin out there, but sin in the heart was was needed. A king who could establish peace and, and righteousness on earth. And that king is Jesus. He is the one who comes to establish the kingdom of God. It's why when Jesus began His public ministry, He called on people to repent and believe that the Kingdom of God is at hand. He is the King. It's why in the the synagogue in Nazareth, at the very beginning of His public ministry, He he read the the prophecies from the prophet Isaiah and said, these are now fulfilled. The peace and the the righteousness that, that the prophet foretold is now coming to pass in Me. I am the King. I am the King who brings righteousness and peace. I am the King who establishes shalom on earth. What no human king could do, I am going to do. Jesus is the King. He is the Lord. But He is not only the Lord, He is also the Christ. He is the Anointed One. Now, now sometimes people today will suggest that the word Christ, the title Christ, means simply king that kings were anointed in the old testament and therefore christ means king and so jesus is really saying the same thing twice here he is king and he is king he is lord and he is christ and in a sense that is true because the christ is the king he is the anointed king but when we read through the gospels we we realize that the christ is a particular kind of king You see, if you read through the the Gospel of of Mark, the whole first half of the Gospel is about uh, revealing to the people that Jesus is the Anointed One, that He is the Christ. And so the first half of Mark's Gospel reaches its climax when when Jesus asks His disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds on behalf of the twelve saying, you are the Christ. They get it. Right, chapters in, we're halfway through the gospel, and finally they realize, you are the anointed one. You are the Christ. But do you remember what happens next? Immediately, Jesus begins to tell them, and as the Christ, I have to die. As the Christ, I have to suffer. As the Christ, I have to be betrayed. As the Christ, I have to be crucified. And Peter says, hey, Jesus, don't talk that way. Put such thoughts out of your mind. That's crazy talk. You're the king. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand. You don't have in mind the things of God. Because as the king, as the Christ, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You see, the Christ is is a particular kind of King. Yes, He is the King, but He is the King who gives His life for His people. He is the King who gives His blood, His precious blood, to ransom His people from the futile ways in which they were trapped. That's what it means to say that He is Lord in Christ. Because He is Lord, there is coming a kingdom Beyond our imagination. A kingdom of of true righteousness and peace. A kingdom where things are as they are supposed to be. A kingdom where, where God's original goodness is restored. And because He is the Christ, those who call upon His name have an inheritance in that coming kingdom. And that's... What Peter wants the crowds to see. That's what we need to see this morning. That we have a Savior who is both Lord and Christ. But what does Peter mean when he says that God has made him to be both Lord and Christ? That language takes us a little bit off guard if we're paying attention. It's not what we... Expect. We, we struggle with the idea that Jesus became or was made Lord in Christ because he's always been Lord in Christ. He is, after all, the, the eternal Son of God. He has always been Lord. He was the Christ before the foundations of the world were even laid. How can Peter say that he was made to be, that he became Lord and Christ? If your mind is swirling at that prospect, I understand it is, it is difficult to, to comprehend. It is, it is a difficult thing to get our, our minds around. Whenever we recognize that the eternal Son of God has, has come into space and time, our minds ought to swirl a little bit. We, we ought not to think that we fully comprehend the, the full reality of, of what's going on when the eternal enters into finitude. We we don't fully understand it, but we have to recognize that the Scriptures don't hesitate to speak this way. Remember when we were reading through, or studying through the uh, the book of, of Hebrews? The author of Hebrews told us that Christ was made perfect through suffering. That's just as difficult. How can you say that Christ was made perfect? Doesn't that imply that previously He wasn't perfect? How can you say that he became perfect? Well, we have to understand that it doesn't mean that, that he was previously not perfect, but, but to be perfect is to be complete, it is to be full. And Jesus was not the full Savior. He was not complete until he went through his suffering. You see, his passion, his, his suffering, his death, his crucifixion, they were absolutely necessary to his work as the Redeemer. Yes, he was Lord and Christ from eternity. But in space and time, he became Lord in Christ through the cross. It was only as he went through the cross, and only as he conquered death, that he became the Savior. It's why God could not take the cup out of his hand as he pleaded with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because it was absolutely necessary for him to finish the course that had been set before him if God's definite plan of redemption was going to be accomplished. How He can be both Lord and Christ for all eternity and how he can become Lord in Christ in space and time is, is difficult for us to understand. But recognize we use the same sort of language about ourselves in Christ. In Christ, we have been saved. In Christ, we are being saved. In Christ, we will one day be saved. In Christ, we are becoming what we already are. And in the same way, Christ becomes what He has always been through the cross. And it's because of that that phenomenon, that reality that Jesus is the Savior only through the cross, that we can begin to understand not only that, that as Lord in Christ, He is the very heartbeat and the very essence of the Gospel, but we can understand that He is the only essence of the Gospel. You see, this is why Jesus is the only way to the Father. This is why there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved because salvation is not merely an act of God just saying, okay, I'll decide to save. Salvation had to be accomplished. And it had to be accomplished through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God could not simply overlook or ignore our rebellion. He could not simply let sin be. He had to deal with it, and He had to deal with it decisively. And He dealt with it in the cross. In the cross, our guilt was removed. In the cross, our enemies were defeated. In the cross, our salvation was accomplished. And since He is the one and only sacrifice for sins, He is the one and only Savior of sinners. And that is why we must call upon Him if we are to be saved. That is why there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. But of course, if He is the only Savior, if He is the only hope of salvation, then we need to know how we know. How do we know that He is Lord in Christ? How do we know that He is indeed the One in which we can be saved? That's actually the, the main question that Peter's trying to answer here in these verses. He wants the men of Israel to know for certain that God has made them, has made him to be Lord and Christ. And so this is actually where he spends the, the bulk of his time. In these verses, he he spends his time pointing the, the people of Israel and, and therefore pointing us to three things that God has done, that we might know for certain that Jesus is indeed Lord and Christ. First, we see that God has attested Jesus with mighty works and wonders and signs. Second, we see that God has raised him up from the dead. And third, we see that God has exalted him to his right hand. So let's look at these three things in a little more detail. How do we know that Jesus is Lord and Christ? Well, he tells us, first, God has attested him. God attested him with mighty works and, and wonders and signs. Of course, he is talking about the miracles that, that Jesus did during the three years of his public ministry. You see, when Jesus did these miracles, when he, when he healed the lame man, when he, when he cast out a demon, when he calmed the storm, these were not simply random displays of power. They were that. He he calls them mighty works. These were were mighty works. These were things that that ordinary humans don't do. And that's significant. You know, sometimes people today want to sort of explain away the miracles with with natural explanations, natural causes. And to do so is to completely miss the point. It's not that, that, that Jesus inspired generosity by having this little boy share his lunch that's the, the modern explanation. Well, well, this little boy was willing to share, and so everybody else shared the lunch that they brought too, and everybody had enough. No, that's not what happened. The, the crowds had, had gathered, and they had forgotten to bring food because they were enamored with who Jesus was, and, and they found themselves in a desolate place without food. And only one little boy had lunch, and Jesus took that one lunch, and he multiplied it to feed the thousands. That is a mighty work. That is a wonder. That is something that human beings don't do. That is something that human beings can't do. But it was also a sign. It was a sign. You see, God uses such displays as signs. He uses such displays for a very specific purpose. He uses such displays to to validate before the world. Here is a man... Sent from me. Here is a man who speaks on my behalf. You see, we have to understand that. Jesus did these miracles in the power of the Spirit. But others throughout human history have also done miracles in the power of the the Spirit. So so we don't need to get ahead of ourselves. We don't need to, to think, well, Jesus did miracles, therefore he was God. That's not actually the way it works. Because if we're going to say that, then we're in trouble because Elijah did miracles and Moses did miracles. And after this, Peter and Paul are going to do miracles. And if we say that miracles prove that somebody is God, then all of a sudden, we've got a problem. And so the miracles don't prove that Jesus is God. That's not the way that miracles work. But rather, the miracles, the the, the displays of God's power, validate the person who does the miracles as one who speaks for God. As one who speaks the very words of God. As someone who speaks with God's authority. And so therefore, the crowds who witness the miracles know to listen to Him. And so the crowds should have known to listen to Jesus. And it's in listening to Jesus that they would have found out who He was. It's in listening to Jesus that they would have come to realize that that He is the eternal Son of God come to lay down His life for His people. It's in listening to Jesus in the same way that it was listening to Moses or listening to Elijah or listening to Peter or listening to Paul. You see, the miracles had the same purpose in all those cases. Listen to this one. But Jesus presented Himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus presented Himself as the resurrection. The others all pointed to Him. Moses and Elijah pointed to the One who would come. Peter and Paul pointed to the One who had come. But all of them spoke with God's authority and all of them pointed to Jesus as the Christ. As God's eternal Son come in the flesh. And give His life as the ransom for His people. And so the first thing that we see is that God validated Jesus during His public ministry. God said, here is one you should listen to. Here is My Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And those miracles... Our testimony to us even today. Now you may think, well, I didn't see the miracles. I didn't, I didn't see them the same way that these crowds saw them. I didn't, I didn't see them. I wasn't there, but you have to recognize that most of these people weren't there either. Most of the people gathered in Jerusalem that day weren't there either, but they had the testimony of the eyewitnesses given in a time when that testimony could be corroborated, a testimony that has been handed down from one generation to the next from that day, so that we now rest upon that same testimony, that same acknowledgement that Jesus was publicly validated before His peers, before His contemporaries. He was publicly testified to be one who spoke the words of God, one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But of course, Jesus' testimony about himself was at the very least called into question by his death. All of a sudden, the, the religious authorities were able to say, in fact, they had already been saying, listen, Jesus' power is not, is, is not from God. Jesus' power is, is from the devil. This is, this is what the authorities said about him. And, and actually, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy actually tells us that some will come and they will do great signs, but they will call you to go after other gods. Don't listen to them, it's a test. And that's exactly what the religious authorities were saying about Jesus. They were, they were saying that yes, he does, he does great miracles, we can't deny it, but His power is not from God, because He's calling you to go after some strange religion. And so Jesus was, was called into question, and then the, the authorities seemed to be right when Jesus was put to death. It seemed to invalidate everything that Jesus had had said about himself. And so in order to confirm his testimony, God gave a second sign. God attested Jesus not only by miracles during his public ministry, but God attested Jesus by raising him from the dead. Peter says God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Think about that language. Not possible. It was not possible for death to hold him. It's an amazing statement. Not possible for death to hold him. Death doesn't lose its grip on anybody. How is it not possible for death to hold him? Death, Death is a strong man. And yet here, Peter is depicting death to be the strong man who was bound by a stronger one. Yes, death is a strong man. Yes, death holds on to its victims. Yes, death cannot be avoided or or conquered by ordinary human beings. But death must submit to God's word. And God said, you cannot hold him. He had had prophesied it even long before. I don't have time to get into all of these Old Testament quotations, but But Peter looks at the the psalm and and he, uh, Psalm 16, and he he recognizes that David could not have been talking about himself because David's grave is still here with us in Jerusalem to this day, he says. So therefore, David must have been speaking as a prophet and he was speaking about the one to come. He was speaking about the, the Holy One. He was speaking about the Messiah. And David, as a prophet, says of the Messiah that death will not hold him. He will not see corruption. His soul will not be cast into Hades. He will rise again. It's what God said He was going to do. And it's what God did on the third day when Jesus rose again from the dead, victorious over death and sin. And by His resurrection from the dead, God declared that Jesus is indeed who He said He was. That His death was not uh, an accident. It was, it, was, it, was not a, uh, it was part of God's definite plan. It was part of the plan of redemption that God was working out from the beginning. And so by His miracles during His life and by His resurrection after His death, God declared Him to be both Lord and Christ so that we might know for certain. And of course, there's a third piece of evidence here as well. Because the third confirmation of Jesus' identity is the Pentecost that they are seeing. is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because the outpouring of the Spirit is the result of His exaltation. Remember, Jesus had ascended to the Father in a cloud of glory. And in that cloud of glory, He had entered into the presence of the Ancient of Days to receive His kingdom and to be seated upon His throne. And that is a glorious sight described for us by the prophet Daniel. But it's not a sight that we can see with our own eyes. And so Peter says, listen, the evidence that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father is this exactly that you are seeing here. Being therefore exalted and having received from the Father the Spirit, He has now poured out that Spirit on His church. So the third evidence of of Jesus' identity is the Spirit-baptized church. The church that has received the Spirit. The church that has been clothed with power to do that work of ministry which it has been given do The Spirit is the seal guaranteeing the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so by these three evidences, by these three demonstrations, God has attested that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, that He is the King who comes to put things right, and He is the Christ who has made a way for you to receive His kingdom. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with His own precious blood given as the ransom price for many. That is the heart of the good news. That is the Gospel that that, that Peter wants the men of Israel to hear. And that is the Gospel that we need to hear this morning. And so let me ask you simply this. Do you have this certainty? Do you know for certain that He is Lord in Christ? And maybe more importantly, does your life demonstrate that you have this certainty? Do you live in this full assurance that He is who He says He is? That He is the resurrected Lord who laid down His life as the ransom price for His people? Do you live in that assurance? You see, at some point, In their teens or their 20s, most people who who grow up in the church, most people at some point, they come to a a moment of crisis, a moment of decision when they have to decide, do I really believe these things are true? Usually that that moment comes when, when following Jesus is going to cost them something, when it's going to cost them something precious, when it's going to cost them something dear. When something that they have grown to love is on the table, and they have to ask, do I I really believe that Jesus is the Christ? You see, there was a young man who came to Jesus during his ministry and said, good teacher, tell me how to have eternal life. He recognized that Jesus was a good teacher, but when Jesus laid down the cost, he went away sad because he was not willing to follow. He didn't really believe that Jesus was who he said he was. We all must face that decision, but it's not just 20-somethings. You see, all of us face that decision every day. All of us must ask ourselves, today will I live like He is Lord in Christ? Today will I live with my hope set firmly upon the grace that is mine in Him? The truth is you can do so, and you can do so boldly. You can follow Him today and every day. Because you can know for certain that He is Lord in Christ because God has attested. He attested Him during His public ministry. He he attested Him by His resurrection. And He attested Him by pouring out the Spirit upon His church. And in these ways, we can now have that full assurance that sets us free to live as His followers here and now. Whatever course He sets before us. And because we have such assurance, because we can have such bold confidence, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace. And we ask that You would open our minds and our hearts to to know and to receive this Gospel. To recognize that Jesus is Lord in Christ and to rest upon Him for our salvation day by day until that day when you bring to completion the good work that you have begun. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.